2: Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com.
0: Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration law. I'm Stephen Mirans. On July 8, 2022, the Supreme Court of Canada rendered its decision in Law Society of Saskatchewan v. Abramets. The case involved whether a delay in a law society proceeding constituted an abusive process. The Supreme Court said that delay may constitute an abusive process in two ways. One, the fairness of a hearing can be compromised where delay impairs a party's ability to answer the complaint against them. Or two... Even where there is no prejudice to the hearing's fairness, an abusive process may occur if significant prejudice has come about due to inordinate delay. Although this was not an immigration decision or case, the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers, or CARL, intervened at the Supreme Court and provided submissions on abusive process in the immigration context. We are joined today by Prasanna Balasundaram to discuss Carl's submissions and the Supreme Court's decision. Prasanna is the Director of Downtown Legal Services at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Law, and has been involved in numerous test case litigation and law reform endeavors, including around topics like the designated country of origin regime and the safe third country agreement. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, I think Prasanna's the hearing for the safe third party agreement litigation at the Supreme Court is today, the day that I am recording this intro, and Persana might actually be speaking at the Supreme Court on that topic as well. Persana and Audrey Malkin, an immigration professor at the University of Toronto, represented Carl before the Supreme Court in Law Society of Saskatchewan v. Abrametz. So today we are discussing in brief when processing delays or delays in a refugee claim or any immigration matter can be an abusive process. Once again, if you like the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes and I hope you enjoy. So how did Carl decide to even intervene in this case? Cause it wasn't an immigration case.
3: Um, that's a really good question, Steve. So, um, Carl has a lit- litigation committee that sort of watches cases as they work themselves up, um, through the appellate courts and, uh, While, you know, the focus naturally is on refugee and immigration cases, Carl does watch administrative law cases, just it being sort of this overarching kind of um, area that that infuses and touches everything that we do day to day. Um, So this was identified uh, as it moved from the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal to the Supreme Court. And it was identified specifically because, Uh, the write-up on the Supreme Court um, essentially said that the court may be looking to recalibrate or revisit the Blanco test that was set down in in the year 2000 as to whether or not, um, you know, delay constitutes an abusive process and what remedies may be available. Um, The write-up indicated that the court was going to revisit this in light of uh, Jordan and Herniac. So, um, as, as your listeners might know, Jordan was a, a seminal case from the Supreme Court in which um, the court set down a presumptive timeline beyond which delay would be considered unreasonable in the criminal context. So this is for the purposes of Section 11B. Um, and then another case, herniac, um, which was in the civil context in which the court the Supreme Court commented on a, on a culture of delay, in sort of the civil litigation project, uh, civil litigation process rather, and urged sort of a culture shift uh, to address the issue, noting fundamentally that this is a rule of law problem. If we can't get this delay issue under control, it's going to cause a rule of law problem. And so, Carl viewed this as a potential opportunity to um, influence. Uh, sort of some decision making in the administrative law context, which seemed to be the only sort of significant doctrinal area of law that had been left out uh, from this recent kind of um, focus on delay and access to justice. So that's how it came to cause attention. And we thought, um, you know, this might be a good case to
1: intervene on.
2: Because I think that the de- the decision in Jordan has been distinguished from the immigration context, if I'm not mistaken, on the basis that the uh, what what applies in the criminal setting doesn't necessarily serve in the immigration setting. So, um, as far as you're aware, was it something that was kind of earmarked as the as Carl looking for a test case to to put forward these arguments?
3: Not necessarily. Like, as you said, Deanna, you know, we had been aware of a few instances um, at the federal court, wherein some counsel tried to rely on Jordan and sort of bring that into delay arguments in the, in the refugee and immigration context, unsuccessfully, unfortunately. Um, But this wasn't sort of a burning issue that Carl had been tracking for some time. Um, Of course, as you know, uh, in as all refugee and immigration practitioners know, delay is just a feature of the system. Um, but you know, it, it's rare that an opportunity presents itself to to kind of affect uh, or potentially affect um, you know a, a wide ranging uh, issue like you know delay in the context of visa processes. So that's how it came up.
2: Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think that there we've talked in a couple of previous episodes about there being some uh, degree of shift just in terms of uh, the the bench seeming a little bit less tolerant of delay in recent years than they have been in the past. I mean, even just we have talked about uh, the standard on pandemus being something that's been slightly shifting uh, just in terms of their threshold in terms of. Uh, just administrative delay around the pandemic, and the courts being sort of like, okay, we'll get over it, and now we would like to see you getting back to whatever is some sort of a normal standard and a normal cadence of processing. But to to see something in the abusive process context is uh, is still something quite unique.
3: That that's exactly right. Um, you know, I think. Uh, as practitioners, we welcomed that shift that you spoke about. Um, you know, we saw it particularly in the context of ministerial relief applications, where we were seeing delays, you know, in some instances of 8, 12, sometimes I think 18 years in which nice. a decision was yet to be rendered. Um, and in those instances, while mandamus was, I think, a go-to sort of remedy, it did seem a little um, sort of absurd. That, yeah. that, you know, given the delay, um, that the ultimate remedy was a court directing them to make the decision when, you know, clearly that delay could be conceived of as an abusive process, particularly because, um, there was usually no explanation as to why, um, you know, there was a lack of a decision. And so, um, using sort of the Blanco uh, framework, conceiving of the delays that we see really as an abusive process and trying to think about effective remedies in that context was was part of the exercise of, of this intervention, for sure. And well, there's I think delays, that, that, oh, go ahead.
2: Uh, I was just going to say that, like, I think that, you know, the the challenge for litigators in this era has been to try and come up with new ways of approaching familiar problems, you know, like using things like habeas corpus and <laughs> like, you know, trying to come to old problems with innovative solutions. Um, and the idea of looking at abusive processes that it's not just a matter of delay, it's delay to the extent that it renders the remedy meaningless. Uh, and so I think that that, uh, I think that that is, really a unique take on the, the subject as a whole and just seeing how broadly it can be looked at. Um, I, I, I want to hear what, what Steve's uh, question was, but I, you know, when, one of the curiosities that I have is just overall uh, was Carl's takeaway one of disappointment or one of triumph at the way that the court came down, um, you know, uh, to me, I was just, I was a little, disappointed that they limited so much to the appellate standard and you know because of course that has very much uh you know limited the applicability to the immigration context and anyways i just wanted to know sort of going right to the punchline and then we can kind of back up and go through the um you know the nuts and bolts of the decision as well
3: sure um <laughs> i mean just in response to to your question to my mind this decision was a disappointment. Um, There really was, I thought, an incredible opportunity, as I said, to bring some of those fundamental animating principles that drove the decision-making in Jordan, that drove some of the commentary in Herniak, to bring that into the administrative law context and to, to sort of make a measured recalibration recognizing that administrative law is distinct from those other two areas of law. You know, administrative law covers everything from a refugee claim to, um, you know, uh, the regulation of of nuclear plants, uh, CRTC proceedings, to the issuance of fishing licenses. There there are vastly different, um, you know, interests at stake. and, And I think that is one of the challenges of administrative law from a doctrinal perspective is to sort of, um, you know, really focus and have doctrine that can be applied in such a diversity of settings and decision-making forms. And and we recognize that as a challenge. Um, However, you know, the position that Carl really staked out was that the framework that was set out in Blanco in the year 2000 really hadn't addressed What Blanco itself recognized was a culture of complacency within administrative decision making. So, you know, some 20, 21 years on, um, what the court attempted to fashion as a remedy hadn't actually worked. And so what Carl's position was, was essentially that um, this recalibration was necessary to ensure meaningful access to justice particularly for vulnerable groups uh, that we see day-to-day in our practice. Refugees and non-citizens were, as you know, disproportionately affected by delay. Um, and how we sort of built this argument was essentially to show that uh, delay is endemic to the refugee and immigration process. Um, you know, we cited decisions, and you may be familiar with this, um, these decisions, Deanna and Stephen, Uh, wherein the federal court declined to provide a meaningful remedy, even though they recognized delays of six years, seven years, 11 years, and beyond. Um, And then we also drew on some jurisprudence, but also academic literature, to show that the impact of these delays were significant to those that were affected. Um, You know, in Jordan, the Supreme Court recognized sort of the stress, anxiety, and stigma of the delay that kind of befalls someone who's put through the criminal trial or the criminal uh, process. And we argue that there are parallels there to uh, refugee and immigration determinations. And, and, you know, um, there's a degree of precarity there uncertainty with respect to status and all of the stress that that entails. There's of course, separation from family in cases where, uh, you know, the underlying proceeding seeks to reunify family members. Um, there are barriers to work, um, there are issues around housing. So we, we highlighted all of this to say, mm-hmm. look, you know, if ultimately um, this yeah. is the situation and it has been going on for some 20 years, there is sort of an opportunity here to, to revisit this and, and adjust this. Right. Um, and of course, I if
2: think- the refugee determination process is supposed to be trauma-informed, Having it endure over this period of time is not by like any stretch of the imagination it's efficient and like trauma and In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's re really traumatizing it to the other community.
1: That's exactly
3: right, Deanna. You know, we were trying to underscore this concept um, that the academic literature actually identified in the criminal context, but has been recognized in the refugee and immigration context. And that is this idea of process as punishment, right? You you subject someone to such a harsh, uncertain, indeterminate process. And by subjecting them to that process itself is a form of punishment. And it can be ways in which, um, and you, you, I'm sure, have seen this in your own practices where clients say, well, you know what, I'm not going to pursue this anymore it's too much
1: right it's too much i'm
3: going to withdraw i'm going to take take my chances in my home country even if you know there's a chance that i might be persecuted or i might even lose my life it's just i can't bear this i can't bear the uncertainty right so so we try to underscore that process um that concept um sort of related to to Carl's position, and and I think this might resonate with the two of you, um, just given the variety of sort of proceedings in in refugee and immigration work, is that, you know, the focus here was on a stay, right? Um, But we pointed out that a stay of proceedings is actually something that might not be appropriate, particularly when the person concerned is seeking the conferral of... A, a right, a recognition or a benefit, right? So if someone is coming forward and saying, I'm making a claim for refugee protection and I'd like to be recognized ultimately as a protected person, a stay is a completely irrelevant remedy in that context. Um, and so what we had argued was that in circumstances like those, a directed verdict is actually the most appropriate remedy where there has been a delay that rises to you know a level of abusive process and so wherein a reviewing court would say, look, I'm going to direct the decision maker to actually confer that status in recognition of how long this has taken and all of the prejudice that it has uh, caused this particular individual and and there are, some limited instances of of appellate courts recognizing that as a, as a potential remedy. And there was some commentary in Vavilov, which we thought was at least a bit of an opening to, to have the court kind of take that up. And, and. um, I think
2: I've raised that section of Vavilov every time (laughs) I've appeared in federal courts since that came down and nobody wants to take it out with me.
3: (laughs) That's right. I, 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 we were definitely being optimistic and our hope was like if we could even get you know, some recognition or a line or two of commentary on that that might firm it up as an option. But I think I think you both sort of see the dilemma here, right? Um, it's for those that are not sort of a respondent to a state initiated process, but are in fact the ones that have initiated the process. Um, you know, you need some resolution and a stay is just not going to cut it And so we were hoping for some creativity, some flexibility there in recognizing um, a directed verdict as, as a potential remedy. You know, ultimately the majority in, in Abermets does recognize that there's a a sort of remedial flexibility and that's infused and informed by context. So, you know, it's a little
2: vague for sure. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Yeah. Uh, But it, you know, I think that the possibility of that is still open and, you know, You just need uh, the sun, the moon, and the stars to line up the right case, the right lawyer, the right judge. And, and, you know, that's maybe the foothold you need.
0: So let's get into sort of the nuts and bolts, as Deanna mentioned. If uh, we've talked about mandamus before, which the Supreme Court also references in their decision, Mm -hmm. and the remedy in mandamus is, as you noted, an order from the court that a tribunal basically does its job within a certain period. If someone were to come and say in the immigration context that they instead want to file a claim for abusive process, Mm -hmm. how would you describe the possible remedy to them? And then the question that I'll ask after that is to An overview of the actual Blanco test, but first, how would the remedy, we've talked about it a little bit, but if you were just explaining to a prospective client, what the remedy would look like, um, in two circumstances, one is, I mean, we've talked about processing delays, but the other context where abusive process claims could come up is citizenship revocation, cessation of refugee status and scenarios like that.
3: Definitely. Um, So I guess my first decision-making point would be to um, sort of think through what is the underlying um, sort of application about. So to my mind, there's sort of a a significant distinction between applications or proceedings that are uh, initiated by the person concerned, seeking some, uh, as I said before, uh, status, um, or benefits, so a refugee claim, an application for citizenship, an application for permanent residence, or even a temporary residence permit. I would distinguish that from applications in which the, permit, um, the person concerned, rather, is the respondent, so an inadmissibility proceeding, a cessation proceeding, a citizenship revocation proceeding. So I'd sort of think through, um, you know, what, what is this administrative process ultimately, um, you know, Uh, all about. Where the person concerned, where your client is the respondent to a state initiated administrative proceeding, I I would think that, um, you know, an abusive process uh, type argument um, may be a little bit easier to advance. Uh, And so what I would do is sort of take them through um, what we need to do to show that there is an abusive process. And so what Abermets sort of does is, is clarify what the code test is, just provides a little bit of commentary. And, and so the test is essentially a three-part test. Um, first, you know, we have to be able to show that the delay is unreasonable. And uh, this is a contextual sort of analysis. So we need to look at the nature and purpose of the proceedings. Um, We need to take a look at the length and causes of delay and uh, the complexity of facts and issues uh, that are at play. Um, So if we're able to sort of put together a case to show that that the delay is unreasonable, then we need to look to, okay, what is the harm that the delay has caused uh, to to our client? And so here we would be looking at um, examples of psychological harm, disruption of family life, loss of work. And I think these are all things that we can, you know, they, they kind of resonate with us day to day. It's what our clients tell us day to day. I think that's something that we could, we ought to be able to make out uh, quite easily. And then sort of finally, if we're able to, to kind of uh, meet those first two problems of the test, you know, we need to counsel our clients to say, you know, there is still this third prong that's a little bit difficult to assess how it's going to play out. And that is what Abrametz says is that a reviewing court has to conduct a final test to determine whether there was an abusive process. And the test is sort of met where the delay is manifestly unfair. So it's a pretty high standard and in some way brings the administration of justice into disrepute. So these are some sort of lofty terms and have been in the past, as I said, over the past 20 years, very rarely found in the refugee and immigration context. And I'm not confident um, that that they will be sort of more easily found in the wake of abhorments. And so that, that's really the decision-making process. And if we feel like that's something that we can we can meet and want to advance, then it makes sense to come forward and ask for a stay of proceedings um, as a remedy, because what we're looking to do is preserve the status quo. We don't want that cessation application to go forward because of the delay. Um, you know, we don't want that um, citizenship revocation to, to go forward. Um, I, I do want to pause here just to flag that the focus of Appermats, um has been about sort of uh, delay that is inordinate, that concerns sort of the administration of justice delay that brings the administration of justice into disrepute. There is another prong of sort of the Blanco analysis that focuses on hearing unfairness, right? So where delay has resulted in a prejudice or somehow constrains the ability of your client to actually meet the case that has been set forward, it is possible to to invoke sort of delay in that circumstances. And this is sort of a common sense kind of understanding. Um, The longer something goes on, you know, memories fade, evidence sort of becomes inaccessible for one reason or another. And so in that way, your client's ability to actually meet the case is impaired. And so that's also, I think, a consideration to, to, to have here in terms of, determining you know how you deal with the issue of delay um, so that I think in broad strokes is, is how I'd appreciate uh, how I'd approach it I'd say you know in in terms of the other category of cases where your client is coming forward to seek status um, look I, you know I, I think that um, that remedial flexibility really isn't, even though, um, you know, the court in Abermatz talks about declarations of recognizing that there's been delay, uh, cost consequences, uh, expedited decision making, um, you know, apart from expedited decision making, I would say sort of the remedy where you're coming forward, um, you know, is, is usually inadequate. I mean, what you're seeking in terms of refugee status is a declaration to begin with. So having a parallel declaration that there's been delay, I I don't actually think, um, you know, does justice for that particular refugee claim. If if
0: someone were to uh, ask whether one of those remedies could be cash. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we know that generally in federal court judicial reviews, costs are very hard to get (laughs) and they're nominal often. And uh, mandamus, it would be the same. With an abusive process claim, is cash like almost turning it into a? Is it? A, does it be? Is there a way to turn it? If someone were to ask, is there a way to turn it into almost an indirect tort litigation for lost wages as a result of that uh, abusive process? Some way to compensate for family separation? Has that yeah. been tested before? Is that like a possible remedy for an abusive action claim?
3: And that's that's a. Fantastic thought, Stephen. Um, you know what, to my knowledge, it hasn't been tested in the way that you've described, but I definitely think the commentary uh, of the court in Abermets as well as Blanco leaves that possibility very open. So what Abrametz uh, speaks to and so does Blanco is this idea of the remedy being sort of proportionate to uh, the prejudice suffered, right? <clears throat> Um, And so when crafting sort of an appropriate remedy, if one was to really catalog and and, and identify all of those specific ways, as you mentioned, like, um, you know, uh, loss of wages because of work precarity, and if you could demonstrate in the record that these were the reasons why they weren't able to secure work over the long term, this is what the losses were, I don't see how you could be foreclosed from, from pursuing that. Um, you know, uh, but it's, as you say, uh, in the refugee and immigration context, generally costs are, um, rare, uh, and, and I think you would have to, you know, be quite creative and being able to kind of frame it, uh, in, in the way that you're, you're describing, but I, I think the possibility is there.
2: I just think we've been talking in the last few months with a lot of uh, very innovative litigators about how to find creative avenues to push fundamental justice issues. So I, I like where Steve is going with this. Uh, and, you know, I mentioned sort of some of that uh, litigation around the use of habeas corpus and in, in immigration in the immigration context as well. Uh, but just, you know, trying to find innovative remedies, uh, t- you know, to try and, talk about institutional delay uh, and to try and combat that, uh, what did you call it, the culture of complacency. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm interested in just knowing generally um, sort of some background about uh, how organizations like Carl are approaching test case litigations in a more sort of strategic uh, way to approach uh, sort of um, systemic issues that, um, that litigators across the immigration and refugee bar are facing? Uh, How do we take a collaborative approach like this to address some of these systemic issues? Um, I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about that and just like how we might collaborate on some of these uh, overarching issues that we're all facing on an ongoing basis.
3: No, I I think that's a great question, Deanna. So what I can say is that uh, CARL relies significantly on its membership, you know, refugee and immigration lawyers such as yourselves, um, to identify some of those systemic issues, um, you know, and essentially it's a somewhat organic process whereby, you know, through through both formal and informal discussions, essentially some of these systemic issues get, get sort of distilled down and crystallized into, okay, here are some very specific issues. So for example, you know, as I said, delay has always been recognized as a feature of uh, the refugee and immigration system, and so then what occurs is, um, you know, again they, they range from formal to informal discussions about what are the appropriate advocacy forms, right? So it could be uh, everything from consultations with the administrative decision makers themselves, so the IRB, CBSA, um, delegates of IRCC. Um, it can range from that to uh, possibly kind of um, looking to see whether some litigation can, can either be supported. So existing litigation where we, where we know a particular lawyer is, is raising an issue, um, there might be sort of um, some discussion strategy session hey have you considered this idea have you considered this idea we're hearing from our membership that this might be something that, that you might want to consider um and then then you kind of move to okay um is there a particular case that's proceeding where sort of a pointed intervention can make a difference and so Abermets was one of those cases and, and you see sort of carl intervening. Um, at various cases, both at the Supreme Court, the Federal Court of Appeal, and in some instances at the Federal Court. And then the final kind of um, sort of advocacy forum or or, or sort of strategy would be um, whether Carl is going to be a public interest litigant in some uh, litigation. So here, seeking sort of party status and kind of stepping in to say, look, there is a systemic issue here. Um, individual litigants are, for a number of reasons, unable to come forward and pursue this before the courts. And so we are stepping in and we are going to sort of... Um, seek standing. Seek standing and, and advance this issue on behalf of those that can't. And so that that's one, uh, one sort of crucial way as well. Um, but yeah, really, you know, it is... Um, all of the membership, all of the practitioners, the academics that are sort of doing this work, kind of uh, collaborating um, to to identify and distill those issues for sure.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you wanna tell people the big news?
2: Uh, For litigators that are uh, perhaps not familiar with the process, uh, is there a particular avenue that they should be going through? If, for example, they have a case that they think might be of interest to Carl uh, as an intervener, how they would maybe get that forward to to the appropriate person?
3: Definitely. So um, you can see on the Carl website that Carl has a litigation committee. They are sort of the primary I guess, uh, section of Carl that um, does all of the work that I just described, including sort of um, assisting um, with sort of, you know, just some preliminary discussions, lawyers who are contemplating taking a case up that might have a wider systemic impact uh, to considering, you know, interventions and and public interest standing uh, cases. So definitely look to the Carl website, um, look to the litigation committee, reach out to the litigation committee. And what I would suggest is involve, if you, if you believe that your case would benefit from uh, Carl's sort of expertise and, and, and sort of um, collaboration, reach out as early as possible. Um, because part of, uh, you know, as you know, Uh, the issue is sort of developing the record in such a way so as to be able to anchor some of these arguments. You know, Deanna, you spoke about innovative um, sort of strategies, pursuing innovative remedies. And I think you see these great sort of flashes of argument, right? And, And you see judges sort of recognize, oh, like, yeah, there's something there. But oftentimes, it sort of stumbles on this barrier of, well, where in the record can we root this argument?
2: Exactly. If it's not there in the beginning, you can't uh, insert it uh, later on. So You, exactly. get, you get stuck. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Well, what and that's also
0: for... what we were talking about with, um, I mean, the episode hasn't aired yet, but it will by the time this airs, with uh, Pantia Jafari about how she did a consolidated proceeding of I think over a hundred applicants and even just with that not consolidated, many it
2: was case managed, or
0: case managed, sorry, case managed yeah. proceeding. And with a hundred applicants, <laughs> you're able to notice a pattern, which is also something like the individual may not know, but Carl uh, may know just through the bulk of cases that it reviews.
3: Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. So um, I think that there is a certain persuasive weight when you can show that pattern, uh, I think, frankly, sort of the posture of a judge hearing that case is entirely different, uh, because they recognize that, okay, this is, in fact, a systemic issue. Um, and, and and they're able to, based on, you know, sort of those procedures that allow for case management, consolidation, hear the, rec- uh, hear the evidence collectively, right? And it informs sort of the way that that decision making ultimately happens. Um, That's one of the reasons why public interest sending has been so crucial for Carl, because they can sort of amass the experiences of, you know, tens, hundreds of of, um, refugees or non-citizens and kind of really bring that forward. To demonstrate how um, you know some aspect of of the law or its operation is a systemic issue. So yeah, definitely, Stephen. I think I think those are those are very important ways to kind of underscore these issues before the court.
2: I've been reflecting about um, the nature of practice for those in our uh, section of the bar, uh, because it's not like we practice in an area where most of us will have six or eight other lawyers we can go to in the next office to be like, hey, can I bounce this idea? Like, especially if you're working in litigation and, you know, in refugee practice, like it tends to be you're in a solo practice or a small uh, firm. And it's a lot of, like, people that are breaking into the area. And so I'm just interested in any comments you have, like, for newer members of the, of the bar or for those who are sort of practicing in relative isolation. About opportunities for mentorship that are maybe offered through Carl, um, sort of opportunities that uh, you think that people who are um, sort of not feeling like you know, it's one thing if you feel like this is a case that will be right for um, for intervention, but another one where you're just working through a difficult or challenging case and you need that kind of mentorship or advice or support, um, just different uh, resources that you think might be available to lawyers in those circumstances. Sort of
3: Um, yeah, I I definitely feel you, Deanna, when you say that, because when I started in this area, I started as a sole practitioner. um, And I was fortunate in that I was able to get some space in uh, an immigration law chamber. So I did have the benefit of some, you know, um, some counsel that, that were out for five, seven years, and even some senior counsel who were generous with their time and 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 I was able to bounce some of those ideas. Um, So absolutely crucial for, um, you know, new calls to be uh, connected into a deeper network. So as you guys know, I'm the director of downtown legal services, which is a clinical legal education program here at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law. So I would encourage your listeners who are sort of contemplating a um, career in refugee and immigration law, if at all possible in law school, if your law school offers a clinical legal education program where you can try um, and learn under the supervision of of a refugee lawyer in sort of a very safe learning environment, I would urge you to do that. Um, there, There really is no sort of better way early on to to kind of get into this area of practice with with a significant safety net. Um, So I'd urge that. In terms of of new uh, calls, definitely, Carl has various committees um, and uh, various ways to get involved. So I I certainly encourage all of the newer folks, newer folks at the bar to to get involved. It is a national organization um, and Uh, So, so the possibility exists regardless of where you are in, in the country to kind of join Carl. I will flag that one of my sort of early experiences with Carl was attending the national conferences that they have, I believe twice a year. And that's just a great way to kind of show up. And now hopefully it's back in person after, you know, the last couple of years, it's a great place to show up, meet people um, you know, it may be people that you've, you've corresponded with, um, on, on various listservs and stuff or seeing their names on listservs, but meet them, talk to them, develop that rapport, develop those relationships. Um, I need to double check to see whether Carl offers sort of a formal mentorship kind of program. I, I don't recall, um, that they do, but I can tell you in Ontario, uh, there's other organizations like the Refugee Lawyers Association that also does CPD and offer sort of uh, networking opportunities. Uh, I'm sure there are similar organizations. Uh, in fact, I know Quebec has ACADI. I'm not sure in British Columbia if there's if there is uh, one, but possibly uh, the CBA, of course. Uh, if you're doing more sort of immigration-focused stuff, there's there's opportunities there as well. But um, yeah, you know, I. I I have to say I'm a little out of touch uh, about all of the specific ways, but but yeah, in, in general, it is something I, I it's crucial. It, it's crucial. Um, partly because of the development of substantive knowledge. Uh, you know, how do you do the work? Um, but then there's also just the uh you know the the, the camaraderie and emotional support. Um You know, there there is this concept of of vicarious trauma. You you listen to your client's stories day in and day out. It takes a toll. Um, And you need to be able to have conversations with colleagues, with friends who are doing similar work, because I think they are the ones that truly understand, right? Uh, And and that's essential for longevity if you want to do this work.
2: I always find that I'll be sitting and I'll be fretting about like, how can I not figure this out? And I'll be fretting and fretting and fretting and then I'll call a friend and somebody who's been doing it for as long as I have and they'll also not know. And it's such a relief. (laughs) Okay, I haven't lost my mind. This is just a hard question, you know? Oh, for sure. And like, honestly,
3: (laughs) who can can keep track of all these forms and changes to forms and portals and changes to portals? It's, you know, it, it can be sometimes like, Impossible it's but the oh, yes.
2: culture at the board can change really dramatically in a very short space of time as well, so something that would fly six months ago might no longer be okay and you might need to be much more formal about something so uh, you know uh, it's it's really changing all the time, and so having uh, an ongoing support network is really critical
3: definitely definitely like i you know I'm sure you guys have done this too where um you know, you start a hearing, and you, you find out who your member is, and you're texting, um, you know, your your colleague or your friend to say, "Hey, have you appeared before this member before?" You know, you're just looking for that little bit of information, that little bit of insight, just so you can figure out how are you what you're going to emphasize, how are you going to you know change something in the way that you present, so that you know it's going to resonate, right? And the stakes are obviously high, so any any kind of edge helps, right?
0: Yep. or hey this person spoke at a Canadian Bar Association conference and who are the people who at IRCC who encouraged uh lawyers to contact them with questions I do have one last question about uh the Supreme Court decision and I'm curious as to your thoughts on this so Carl called essentially like this is really oversimplifying it but for the jordanizing of uh Blanco in immigration cases so the idea I guess of like some sort of a timeline after which it's an abusive process. And the Supreme Court kind of addresses it, um, Carl's... Well, so the Supreme Court addresses the broader issue at uh, paragraph 48, where they say, I'll just read the decision, there are fundamental differences between criminal and administrative proceedings. A human rights body's investigation is aimed at determining what took place and seeks to settle the matter in a non-adversarial manner purpose of human rights proceedings is to eradicate discrimination rather than to punish an offender. Similar distinctions can be drawn between disciplinary and criminal matters. While the former are intended to regulate professional conduct within a limited sphere of activity, the latter is intended to maintain public order and welfare for the broad public. And that's the end of the paragraph. And I was kind of struck by how they don't address Carl's argument, which was, how to, what about immigration? or banishment as it, to the opposite of immigration. Um, why do you think, like, is there anything to read into them not specifically commenting on immigration in their analysis of Jordanizing Blenko?
3: Honestly, Stephen, it, it's really hard for me to say. Um, let me just start by sort of emphasizing that Carl's position with respect to Blanco and its relationship to to Jordan was quite nuanced. Um, You know, we recognized that it was not possible to simply transplant sort of the idea of a presumptive ceiling into administrative proceedings generally, and even refugee and immigration proceedings, just given the diversity of sort of applications and and that that might be considered so it it was quite quite nuanced Um, so i found sort of um, justice rose um take on what was being asked uh sort of inconsistent with sort of that nuanced position that we had struck we weren't simply calling for blanco to be jordanized Um, because we appreciated that 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 couldn't be done. Now, moving on, I mean, I think the fact that there wasn't this sort of more nuanced recognition um, really, in in my view, um, sort of is expressed in this rather simplistic kind of analogy of, okay, well, Here's how we distinguish human rights proceedings from criminal law, right? Human rights proceedings are about eliminating discrimination. It is not about uh, punishment or having a punitive aspect to it. Here's how we distinguish disciplinary proceedings in the professional context from criminal proceedings. Professional disciplinary proceedings are about regulating some aspect, some limited aspect of a private relationship. And it doesn't have this broader public law and order component. And you're right. I think the notable omission there is, well, what about immigration law? There are significant parallels, much closer, deeper parallels between immigration law and criminal law, right? It's exactly as you say, you know, there's, there's a repeated kind of emphasis uh, in some of the federal court jurisprudence about how deportation is not punishment. Uh, but it's certainly sort of parallel in terms of the impact on the individual. So there is a clear parallel there. Um, You know, this idea that, and and it's stated in sort of section three and four of the act in terms of what the objectives are, there is a deeply public component Mm -hmm. to refugee and immigration law, right? This is about sort of how Canada selects receives um and maintains status for refugees and permanent residency residents so there's a deeply public aspect to it and and i just found um sort of it to be a very significant omission to at least not consider that in why sort of uh the court should resist this idea of jordanizing um refugee and immigration law or, or administrative law. Right. So
2: even right down to the extent to which in the removal order appeals context, you're talking about remorse, you're talking about public safety, you're talking about, you know, uh, recidivism, like all of this stuff. So, I mean, the parallels are really uh, pretty acute. They're not uh, trivial at all. So yes, I understand it's not intended to be punitive, But at the same time, it it does have a deterrent value in terms of like protection of the public, of of the Canadian public. That sometimes is one of the key purposes uh, behind uh, ordering.
3: That's exactly right. And so, you know, when I when we started out, I think, in response to one of your questions, Deanna, I said that I found the decision overall disappointing. I mean, my disappointment may have been somewhat mitigated if there was an explicit kind of discussion about why it is, um, you know, uh, Blanco and sort of tempering that threshold in the refugee and immigration context was not appropriate. Like, I would have really hoped for uh, some commentary there. Um, I should say, though, I mean, you know, as you, as you guys are well aware, this, this whole case is about a disciplinary proceeding um, the vast majority of interveners in this case were either uh, attorney generals of various provinces or uh, various professional regulation bodies. And so really, the weight of the argument was um, in support of resisting the calls to, um, you know, to use the word of the, co- of the court, to Jordanize Blanco. So that, that, that could be part of the explanation there.
2: Well, this kind of brings me to my, you know, you know, I'm not sure if it's my final question, but it feels like a a, a kind of concluding question for me, which is, um, you know, it's my curiosity around test case litigation, really, which is that the facts of this case were not highly sympathetic and so Mm -hmm. you can bring the highly sympathetic arguments by way of hypotheticals but they're not they don't they're not there to like move the court in the in the same way because uh, the scenario that was actually before them was a a lawyer who had uh you know uh can um who had, who had been uh, accused of committing a number of infractions against clients and all of this sort of thing. So again, while these things are being argued in the abstract, and they have very real life implications, uh, they weren't the facts actually before the court. And again, I know that this is not a court of first instance, we're talking about the Supreme Court of Canada. And yet, I wonder how much in your view test case litigation is harmed by not having those like vivid facts and the, you know, the real life circumstances, um, when you're acting as an intervener and how much uh, does it require us to have, as you said, what was it like those, uh, the, the stars and the moon and the, yeah. <laughs> and the rainbows colliding in these perfect set of circumstances to be able to argue these cases and hopefully get a win that, um, that allows this uh, abusive process, uh, the culture of complacency to be challenged in a proper way uh, that we might have something that we can work with. In, in a more yeah.
3: constructive way no I, I think that's a great question um deanna like my view on this has changed over the time that i've sort of been privileged to do this work initially i was very sort of rooted in the law and if i felt like we could come up with a good persuasive argument to me i felt it was worth advancing but the longer I've I do this, the more, um, you know, the more I recognize and appreciate the importance of facts and that, you know, you can have the best legal argument, but if you don't have sympathetic facts, it's just going to be really, really difficult to get traction. Um, And so, you know, here I would distinguish between interventions and, and other forms of systemic litigation, you know, interventions because you're just kind of, you don't have control, as you said, it, it's sort of the case that goes up. Um, you know, you, you do make a decision and um, the facts of this case weren't particularly sympathetic, but the issue we felt uh, we could really um, spotlight what the impact was on vulnerable um, you know, refugees and non-citizens. And that's what we attempted to do and drawing primarily on secondary sources to, to show that. And so, um, you know, that was our effort at kind of shifting it and and being able to to bring some sympathetic uh, sort of facts to bear. Uh, But, you know, as intervener, our role is is limited. We we can't change the record um, and and we don't have the ability to introduce new facts. Um, but certainly for other types of, of systemic litigation uh, or test case litigation, facts are crucially important. Um, you know, uh, I was again, privileged to be part of the council team that's challenged the safe third country agreement. Um, and our office represents two of the individual litigants and um, you know, the facts in, in that case were, I would say, Crucial, the specific facts in those cases, uh, particularly of one of, um, of Nadira Mustafa, who's was, who was one of the applicants, were crucial at the federal court in driving the decision making. You know, her experience of detention, not just her experience of detention, but her account of it in her affidavit, the way she was able to express it, um, really drove drove the decision-making in my view at the federal court and and laid the foundation for, for what we hope, you know, is going to be a positive decision by by the Supreme court. Um, And so, yeah, like you can look to um, all of these systemic issues, you can recognize them, you can see them play out day to day, but waiting for that case that, that you feel is uh, you know, presents that issue in the most sympathetic light possible is crucial. You know, and there's rich debate about you know, um, is that is that wise when you know that there's injustice occurring? You know, these are all part of part of the challenges of doing this kind of work. I haven't figured out the answer ultimately.
2: (laughs) No, I definitely haven't for sure as well, but I definitely know that as I get more older, (laughs) uh, that I'm getting more and more uh, entrenched into like this uh, narrative of just being a storyteller Mm -hmm. and uh, that, you know, uh, I need the attachment to the facts. And I can't imagine that that's different uh, when you're on the bench that yes, of course, there's the academic rigor and there's the, you know, the, uh, the the judicial prowess and all of this kind of thing. But at the same time, I think that the facts are very powerful. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, this has been um, this has been good. So you have other test litigation. We might have to have you on for the safe third country <laughs> yeah. decision once that comes out.
3: I'll I'll also flag for you, um, just because you you raised it, uh, Stephen. Like we're uh, repping the Canadian Council for Refugees on a challenge to the cessation proceedings Mm -hmm. that tie the loss of permanent residence to um, the cessation of refugee status. Um, So you know, yeah,
2: that's definitely timely for sure.
3: Yeah, yeah. These are these are all challenging cases, and you have your fingers crossed, but. yeah, I mean, there's, to me, a, a, it's very important uh, to, to bring forward systemic litigation. I think I think it's one of the, the small ways in which the dial moves just a little bit, right? Um, and I say that only because you look at the record over the past 10, 15 years of all of the challenges that have been brought and, and sort of how they've all played out. Um, the record isn't necessarily favorable overall, but... Where there have been wins, those wins have been so significant, right?
2: Well, on the safe third country, uh, absolutely, it was uh, crucial. But I just can't remember was Carl an intervener or actually had standing?
3: Oh, okay. um, no, so it was the public interest standing parties are the Canadian Council for Refugees, the Canadian Council of Churches, and Amnesty International. Carl has sought and successfully received uh, intervener status at the uh, Supreme Court.
0: I don't think we've uh, done that topic yet. So it is definitely one that we'll have to do in the future along with like, I mean, it's another topic that we've been discussing is just through people monitoring federal court decisions, noticing patterns, ATIP requests. Like I think more of these systemic issues are being detected than possibly ever before yeah. and so it makes it um, and that ability to share strategies through social media podcasts like this one uh, i think will make it you know an interesting few years going forward
3: definitely definitely i'm not a social media guy but i have heard that there is a young refugee lawyers facebook group um, so you know that's something to to look out for again going back to one of the questions you had Deanna just popped into my mind that that's that seems like a important forum
0: Yeah. a few years ago I was told that I no longer qualify as young so I can't uh can't join <laughs> that group but uh yeah yeah <laughs> that was a, a I dis- just
2: tag along behind Steve that's like my like my vicarious social media so that's it yeah yeah Okay, it was a real pleasure talking with you, Prasanna. Uh, thank you so much
3: for sharing this experience with us. Yeah, Deanna, Stephen, thank you so much. This was a great conversation, and um, yeah, I, I really appreciate you guys inviting me. Thank you.
1: How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.